You're listening to Opera Innovations, a podcast brought to you by ABA Technologies. Today's episode is worth BACB credits, so if you're interested, see the link in the description for more information. But today, we're talking about private equity. It's a pretty contentious topic in our field, but our presenters today do a very good job of presenting both sides, the bad and the good. So on today's episode, we're hearing from Dr. Rick Kubina, Dr. Bobby Newman, and Jacob Sadavoy. So without further ado, let's learn about private equity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our discussion on private equity. My name is Rick Kubina, and I am joined by two of my esteemed colleagues, and I'm going to emphasize the esteem part. Uh, I'm joined by Dr. Bobby Newman and Jacob Sadavoy. And uh, I'm going to be the moderator today. And we're going to talk about this uh, idea about private equity and how it's impacted our field. But before I get into that, I'm going to ask each one of my good colleagues here to uh, just give a quick intro, uh, you know, Stay your name, your current position, and you know, any experience that uh, you have that's relevant to this conversation today. Hi, I'm Jacob Sadovoy. I'm a board-certified behavior analyst with over 20 years of experience applying the principles of applied behavior analysis in home programs, centers, schools, and hospitals throughout the world. To date, I have traveled to 15 different countries to collaborate with local clinicians to develop culturally responsive value-based behavior analytic strategies centered around the client's local environment. My interest in ethics culminated in a text I co-authored with Anne Byrne, Understanding Ethics and Applied Behavior Analysis, Practical Applications. Uh, my interest in compassion and social justice uh, uh, caused the tomb I co-edited with Michelle Zuby. I'm titled A Scientific Framework for Compassion and Social Justice, Lessons in Applied Behavior Analysis. My current interests include addressing the current challenges that we have in our field with respect to training and connection and I'm doing that through a community of practice. Um, I'm also interested in promoting compassionate leadership and OBM strategies within behavior analysis, but also in other um, organizations. Uh, lastly, um, international dissemination and uh, methods and ways in which we can promote our science globally um, is another interest of mine. And I am Dr. Bobby Newman. I am a board certified behavior analyst and licensed behavior analyst in New York and in Tennessee. I am also a licensed psychologist in New York and in Florida. Uh, been around the ABA world since the late 80s, I suppose. Uh, my own areas of research uh, have uh, involved self-management programs for helping people diagnosed primarily on the autism spectrum to develop greater and greater degrees of autonomy. Also sex education with both developmentally disabled and typically developing populations. Uh, my own career, I've tried to spend as much time as I can popularizing the field of ABA, uh, writing books and producing other materials that hopefully make uh, ABA understandable for parents, for direct care workers, for the general public, uh, trying to really help our science to be understood by the population at large. That's excellent. You can see uh, 
from our panel, we, well, I guess I should also introduce my name, myself, and give you my name. I'm Rick Cabina, as I said earlier. And presently, I am a professor at Penn State University, and I'm also the director of research at Central Reach. And my experience has centered mostly on intervention research. I've spent a career looking at what type of interventions can we do that can impact people with disabilities and learning differences in a meaningful way. And I've worked a lot with, uh, early in my career, younger students, and more recently towards the latter part, I've been working with older students. And I've also been moving more into technology and looking at that intersection between technology, our field, and how does that help intervention research. So that's the three of us, and we're going to talk to you today about PE. Now, before we get into that, I'm just going to throw a few words out there. PE, VC, angels. You may have heard about these terms, and the reason why you may have heard about these is because they all relate to business. But we have, in, in applied behavior analysis, uh, almost wherever you are, unless, unless you're doing work completely for free, you probably work at a business. And you know uh, that maybe you own the business, maybe someone else owns that business. And those terms are people that provide different resources to businesses. So VC stands for venture capital, angel, uh, those, those two terms right there, VC, a venture capitalist and angel, those would be people that if you own a business early on, they might want to invest in your business and uh, for in exchange of them providing money to help your business grow, they would get an ownership piece of the business. So maybe someone gives you $100,000 and for that, they own 10% of your business. And, and there's some technical differences, but you know we need to get into that. Now, PE, that stands for private equity. And that's something that many people in our field have been talking about. And that's what our conversation is going to uh, focus on. But PE, private equity, these are people who generally uh, are a corporation and they just buy your business outright. So unlike a VC or an angel that's going to give you some money uh, and, and possibly you know, in exchange for uh, ownership, a uh, certain percentage of ownership, the PE would own that company outright. And so that's the difference it, uh, between PE, private equity, and these other forms of people who would invest. With that, because private equity or PE, as we're going to refer to it in our conversation, has entered our field within the last few years, there have been many stories about PE. And uh, I, I have no doubt if you're on any kind of social media, you've run into uh, either horror stories or stories that aren't horror stories, the opposite of that. And uh, my two colleagues here, you know, we're going to have a conversation about PE because it has reached a level where, uh, you know, some people are very negative and very much against PE and other people share different perspectives. So what we hope to do today is have a conversation around private equity 
in applied behavior analysis and, and, and give you uh, different perspectives and hopefully you can reflect on our conversation and this might help you draw your own opinion about private equity. So let me start off by asking uh, Jacob and Bobby uh, some questions. And the first question I wanna ask is, you know, do either of you two have experience with PE in your past jobs or maybe some other arrangement uh, where you know, you're working alongside a PE company or consulting or you're helping people with PE? Uh, so tell me about your experience with PE. Sure, and by way of introduction, I should have said this in my introduction, I am currently the executive director of clinical services for Proud Moments, which is an organization which does have private equity backing. And something that I would want to uh, add to your very excellent description of uh, what PE is versus venture capital, et cetera, uh, myself and other BCBAs who have been involved with private equity, uh, you may still own shares in your company. Uh, it doesn't have to be a complete purchase outright. You don't own any piece of it, so to speak, and that's everyone's individual business. Uh, but I did want to throw that out there as well. So I have a fair amount of experience working with a private equity organization personally. I have also, because I think the organization that I work with was one of the early ones that got involved. A lot of people have come to me as they've uh, looked at the possibility of becoming involved with private equity. And that's where I've seen some things go very well. And I've also seen some things go very, very badly. Uh, one of the things that I will talk about a lot, uh, forgive me, one of my uh, cliche expressions, you have to know who you're circling the wagons with. And you're going to have to become involved with a firm that shares your values and shares your vision. Uh, just like not all ABA organizations are created equally, not all private equity firms are created equally. And you do need to find the people that you are compatible with in terms of your ethics, your vision, your practice. So I'm coming at this from that perspective. Uh, Jacob? Yeah, I've had um, the opportunity to work for BCBAs, government-run centers, nonprofits, academic institutions, um, and private equity-run companies as well. Uh, from what I have experienced is that there's pros and cons of how all of these programs operate. Uh, the programs that I feel run most effectively are the ones that are truly committed to the success um, of the consumer and the staff. Um, and I also feel that the challenge that organizations experience um, are that there's financial reinforcement for practices that negatively affect quality for consumers um, and well-being for staff. Um, and I don't think that's intrinsic to any one of these modalities of presentation of organizational ownership. Um, and that's where, mm -hmm. that's like kind of where my main um, focus is. Like kind of, we need to be better at supporting ourselves um, within these businesses with, with regardless of the structure of that business, um, because we are, we're hurting ourselves as a field. I, uh, I guess I should say too, in full disclosure, uh, Central Reach is a PE back company. And as part of my experience, I went through owning a company and directly selling to uh, a PE firm. So we all have different experience. And uh, let me ask you to, uh, let's start off on some of the positive sides. What are some good things you've seen 
with PE back companies? For me, I've seen financial resources be able to enrich the quality of services for consumers. I've seen access to resources that would never have been available had those financial resources not been available. I've seen programs created in areas which previously had not had programs. Um, and in some PE-backed companies, I have seen a commitment in staff training um, and a commitment to giving practitioners appropriate caseloads. Like that has all existed in private equity-backed companies. Uh, I think there is also an access to have expertise where the average behavior analyst doesn't have those expertise. And I'm, I'm looking at our core sequences. I'm looking at um, supervision. We don't target how to run. We don't teach uh, behavior analysts how to run businesses. Um, and I think there's a, a misnomer out there that once you have a certain number of years of experience, um, the next logical step um, on a trajectory for behavior analyst is to run an organization. Um, I was consulting at a, um, I was doing some OBM with an organization um, and I asked the students in this organization who are all in uh, various verified course sequences, how many of them have had opportunities to learn about organizational behavior management? And in a group of about two dozen, only one person rose, uh, raised their hand. So I think that's the reality is that we have behavior analysts that are running organizations that don't have um, the skill set necessarily uh, to be successful in running that organization, especially when you consider all of the um, the challenges of like kind of the of just navigating um, licensure, um, insurance, um, all the legal obligations and like running a business effectively. Um, I think there is such advantage. There are advantages of having uh, PE backed companies because they would have individuals that have those expertise. Jacob, do you by any chance have at your fingertips that quote from Laura Unum? Uh, that was a wonderful quote that she had that kind of summarized a few of the things you were just talking about. I don't know if you have it available. I do. I do. Um, she said in, in an article um, by w, from WFAE in March of 2022, uh, Laurie said, um, they brought much needed capital into the field. They brought efficiencies into the field that were sorely needed because historically in the ABA world, it was all these clinically trained do-gooders who didn't know a thing about running a business. Wow, uh, that pretty much sums up a lot and probably would describe me to some degree in terms of, I mean, I hope I was a do-gooder, I hope I am a do-gooder, but I'm also not gonna lie and pretend that I have experiences that I don't. I mean, I have become convinced over the last several years that I have much more business acumen and business savvy than a lot of people based on what I've seen. Uh, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it is not at all my formal training. Yeah. And let me make a couple of the things that you talked about a little concrete. Um, one of my best friends, best colleagues, best wonderful people who we should all pay our taxes to, uh, you all know my friend Bobby Rogers, or some of you know my friend Bobby Rogers. She ran a nonprofit up in the Syracuse area. And for many, many years, we were trying to get something started. And all we could get were these kind of small contracts through our local government organization. And I would come in and I live 300 miles from Bobby in Long Beach and I'm coming up to Syracuse to help. 
And all we could get were these little contracts to do like crisis intervention things. And I'm talking about literally people, 300 pound teenagers knocking out the walls of disabled parents themselves, physically disabled parents. And honestly, I could put together a treatment plan. I could do a functional analysis. I could do whatever, but let's be honest. It was the proverbial drop in a bucket. I became involved with Proud Moments and the uh, then CEO of the organization likes to joke that I dated the organization for 18 months before I took a full job with them because I had been burned by some prior agencies before. But once I really became convinced that they were the real deal, I pulled the CEO aside and I said, you know, I've been trying to get something started in Syracuse with this wonderful person for probably up to 10 years now. We can't get anything going. We don't have the startup capital necessary to really build a clinic to be able to start. And this was before, you know, uh, a lot of developments we've had in the field right now. Uh, we don't have half of the things that we need that I'll be talking about. What would you think of opening up a satellite office in Syracuse? And later that week, he and one of the other colleagues went up there and three days later, we had a functioning clinic. And now we have three serving in an area that was a treatment desert for a very long time they were able to do with a handshake what bobby rogers and i had been trying to do for upwards of 10 years unsuccessfully let me take one other case study uh, i was very anxious to open up a clinic in a uh, city that uh you know again i had some colleagues down there and a lot of people and we'll talk about this later want to be bcbas right you went to school to become a bcba you didn't become a go to school to fight with insurance companies. You didn't go to school to pursue how to get a certificate of occupancy for your building. You didn't go there to do HR. You didn't go there for legal precedence. You didn't go there for any number of reasons. You went there to be a BCBA. And I had a BCBA colleague who wanted to join up with us. And this was just before we made our deal for private equity. And we were playing this sort of cat and mouse game. Well, we can get you a clinic and we can build a clinic in this new city, but you're gonna have to have X minimum of clients. And the person said back to me, well, I could get you those clients very quickly if I had a clinic. So now here's the cat and mouse game, which is gonna come first. Do we have the clinic which attracts the clients that we need or do we have the clients and then we can build the clinic? Once private equity came into our organization and I explained the situation, I won't tell you the exact quote that I got from one of my PE friends because it wouldn't be clean, but the basic answer was get it done. Look, just go and, and, and get it done. And now we have three functioning clinics in that area that are beautifully uh, running. I'm very proud of them. And again, we couldn't have done it. We wouldn't have had the startup capital. We wouldn't have any one of a bunch of things that we would have needed to be successful. So again, I sometimes sum this up as, I went to school to be a behavior analyst, not to fight with insurance companies. With the backing of a large organization, and again, remember for myself, forgive me, I started my independent clinical career working out of my car. And I drove from house to house to house doing home programming. A lot of this was cash business. Uh, I reported all of it, but it was, you know, pay at the moment and hiring staff and they were being paid at the moment. Now it's a different ballgame, guys. Now we're dealing with insurance companies. Now we're negotiating with insurance companies 
for what they're going to cover and what the rates are. And obviously having the size means you're going to have better negotiating power. Those who've ever had to do this know that sometimes there are waits of a year or more for reimbursement. In that time, you still have to be paying your staff. You still have to be paying for the building. You still have to be paying for the lights. A large firm with capital can absorb this. Me operating out of my car could not. The insurance companies will come up with any reason to deny and have disputes that again will dis de delay reimbursement. You got a financial office that can handle this, a billing department that can handle this. There's everything having to do with payroll and benefits and credentialing people with the insurance company. I'd much rather have an HR department do that than me do it personally. There are more compliance with state laws and regulations, having a legal counsel on board and on onsite, um, you know, compliance officer and lawyer was certainly helpful in this. Uh, just getting the assessments approved by the insurance company. BCBAs are terrific at doing functional analyses. They're terrific at designing teaching programs, not necessarily in filling out things, ways the insurance companies are happy with. Now we have an assessments department who speaks the insurance company's language and can, and they're all BCBAs themselves, by the way, in my assessments department, and they can translate what the BCBA has written into insurance speak. So again, all of this stuff, again, I'm going to say this, I went to school to be a BCBA, not to do the rest of this stuff. And again, just having that private equity backing allowed us to open up functioning clinics and now expand those clinics. And they're all autonomous entities now that pay for themselves and do all kinds of neat stuff, but they never could have been in existence in the first place and without the backing in the first place. And then again, the little bumps in the road, the pandemic happened. We were going to have to move everybody over to telehealth. I know a lot of places that closed down. My private equity people said, buy everybody a computer, keep it going. And I'm not going to lie about it. I got a little choked up the night that I did a Zoom call with all my BCBAs. And I said, there are places that are closing. That's not us. We're going to get this done. We're going to, we're going to get through. And the company that we are affiliated with is going to do whatever is necessary to make sure that all of our clients have a computer. Everybody has whatever we need to do to do telehealth until this damn thing is over. And that's what happened. So again, forgive me, I get a little emotional. I got a little choked up that night when I said, you know, other places are closing down, that's not us. But that was also because I had the luxury of some big boys and big girls behind me who were backing me and saying, yeah, get it done. So forgive a long-winded explanation here, but these are some of the advantages and some of the things that you will see. And again, why I've come into contact with so many people who've come to me and said, you know, Bob, I wanted to be a BCBA. I didn't want to do the rest of this stuff to which my answer was great. Let's look at possibly hooking up and you can stay on as the director. You can stay on and be the BCBA that you want it to be. And we got a bunch of people who will take care of the rest. So again, forgive that very long-winded uh, uh, explanation. That, no, those, those responses were excellent. Let me ask you to uh, a follow-up question. Do we have any kind of data now on uh, either through surveys or anything that, that, that gets at uh, where are the differences? Like I remember reading an article that looked at uh, not in our field, but it was um, senior um, senior senior homes uh, like assisted living, and it showed that this the study they did when PE the PE firms actually raised the the quality of care the treatment. 
of care. Do we have anything like that in our field that either of you two are aware of? The only data that I know that exists in behavior analysis around private equity is thanks to Sarah Troutman, Non-Binary Solutions, and the DeFi community. They have data from a questionnaire with over 1,100 respondents, and they were looking at factors that contributed to burnout and job dissatisfaction in behavior analysis. The data show that of all the sectors, and they separated sectors into private, BCBA-owned, government-run, nonprofit, academic, and private equity. They found that those in private equity-run organizations agreed to contacting the most job satisfaction at 60.4% and the least amount of job dissatisfaction at 39.6%. Now, we know that there are numerous articles on burnout and job dissatisfaction in behavior analysis, but this is the only study that teased apart the company profile. This is counter to what I see online in the form of public opinion and based on articles that exist, which paint private equity as a problem, as a source of job dissatisfaction in behavior analysis. Based on what Bobby just shared, the data that we're seeing from DeFi makes sense. With more resources, BCPAs can do what BCPAs want to do what they have competence in doing. It gives them greater flexibility to do what is required and needed for the client. In other sectors with fewer resources, there may be a need to do more with less. The benchmark data from the DeFi community also show that one of the biggest indicators of job dissatisfaction is caseload volume. Companies that predominantly work in government-owned or regulated institutions show the greatest dissatisfaction uh, from the survey. Could this be a symptom of higher caseloads in those environments? This is all new and important data that we need to invest more time in researching so that we can learn what are the optimum work conditions for practitioners so that they are able to provide best quality services for their clients. Even a very minor consideration in terms of the grand scheme of things, but certainly a crucial consideration. We're training new BCBAs, right? People who are up and coming. 60% of their hours are supposed to be in unrestricted set in unrestricted activities. Who do you suppose is paying for all that? Great point. Uh, if people are working and people are being supervised, and again, let's assume we went back to 1990 and here's Bobby getting out of his yeah. jump that I was driving. Now I'm volunteering my time to train people and I'm volunteering my time, uh, let's say, but we can't expect everyone to volunteer their time. And what is there, how do we absorb into the functioning of a modern organization, some of the requirements like the unrestricted hours. Um, are we just expecting people out of the goodness of their hearts to supervise those for new and upcoming people? It's a necessary thing. We're trying to train new BCBAs and, you know, forgive me, where I came from, BCBA training was like a martial arts movie, master and apprentice, and it wasn't a assembly line of a hundred people in a class getting rubber stamped supervision somewhere, forgive me for sounding mean for a moment, but it was a very intimate relationship. I think there were 10 people in my PhD program 
And we had professors who were working with us, um, even at the time I was an adjunct at Queens College and I was running a local organization's behavioral programming. So students would take classes with me and then come to the clinic and work with me. And I was working with my professors and it was a very intimate, very um, involved thing where everybody got their restricted and unrestricted hours. Nowadays, that's not necessarily the arrangement because of the sheer volume of students we have. The now, again, in my, forgive me for sounding like an old man yelling at the clouds, we didn't have online instruction when I was uh, in school. It, it was a thing, you, you were there live. So now talking about things like unrestricted hours and some of the other modern things without a large functioning organization to absorb those unpaid, unbillable hours, many things become very, very difficult to negotiate. That uh, excellent perspective. Uh, I would like to move towards uh, another question. Now, this was talking about, we have this thing called PE private equity that is uh, ha having a, a large footprint in our field. And if you are on any kind of social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, you, know, you, you pick the thing that you like to follow, you've seen people demonize private equity, but it's not just social media. If you go to our conferences, ABAI, um, local, local, it's like state, uh, state conferences, you've probably seen, or you may have seen people talking about this because uh, it can be a thorny issue. And there have been uh, some problematic issues with some stories uh, or with some the way the way things have uh, transpired, let's just leave it at that. So maybe you two could uh, recognize or talk about some legitimate issues that you've seen with with uh, where uh, private equity has gone down a path that is not at all productive for either the people who work for them or, more importantly, the people who are served by PE-backed companies. Sure, I would be happy to start off with that because as I put it, and I did one of those PE talks at ABBA last year, and one of my lines was, yeah, and this can blow up in your face. Um, one of the things that I always, again, I'm gonna repeat my line, be careful who you circle the wagons with the old expression, uh, but the you have to find a private equity firm that shares your vision and shares your values. In my case, we interviewed well over a dozen, maybe 20 different companies until we found people who shared our vision, who told us stories of things like we had prior people that we talked to who tried to cut supervision and training in the name of the bottom line. And we said, we, the private equity people, don't you dare. Our name is associated with you. It has to be associated with quality. If you're running a schlock operation, that's going to hurt us in the long run. We need to trade on quality. We need to trade on effectiveness. So those were the people that we said, yeah, you're, you're from our planet. You speak our language. That's what we're going to do. However, some other people that I have spoken to, unfortunately, did not find those nice people. And so, for example, and I'm just going to pick a couple of things that I've seen blow up. Private equity organization buys the controlling interest in a local organization. 
and says, what we're going to do is we're going to set up all these clinics during the day and kids are going to come to our clinics instead of going to school during the day. Well, no, they're not. Not in the particular geographic area where you set up. In that particular geographic area, parents would have to fight a school district tremendously, and I'm talking $100,000, $200,000 in legal fees and impartial hearings to try to get the kid uh, to be able to be funded anywhere except the public school. Now, a parent could take a kid out of school and homeschool them, but that doesn't mean that the insurance company or someone else is then going to pay for it. So if we're talking about you know, what, this district, what this PE firm thought it was going to do was it was going to open up these clinics and this organization, and what they instead had was they had empty clinics all day. And they ran the organization, unfortunately, into the ground because they simply had a model that might have been effective in some other state, but was not effective um, where they tried to open up and everything just uh, crashed and burned. Another thing that I saw, again, speaking here in New York, uh, for some of our listeners may not be aware that up until this last December, in New York, licensed behavior analysts were only legally allowed to provide services to people diagnosed on the autism spectrum. That was changed at the 11th hour before the new year, thank goodness. But up until uh, the end of last year, that was the case for many years. LBAs have only legally been allowed to work with people on the autism spectrum. A PE firm that doesn't know that comes in and tries to offer services to all kinds of different populations and then discovers that they're operating outside the law and getting everybody's licenses uh, revoked or having people brought up on ethics charges. I have also seen private equity firms that tried to acquire organizations that were only a single individual doing business as. Um, again, you have to be very, very careful for your private equity firm that you uh, connect with where they have to have the same vision as you clinically and they have to be concerned with quality. And they also need to have a solid business model, something that is legal in your state or your area and something that coincides with the culture of the state, so to speak. Um, if you're hooking up with a firm that is only trying to create short-term profits, it's gonna blow up in your face. And the thing that you've built, and I, I don't wanna be callous about this because I'm thinking about friends of mine who built from the ground up their own organization over 20 years and then watched it go down the tubes very, very quickly because they associated with the wrong people. Uh, something I always say is you have to be willing to look at the deal and you have to be willing to, if it's not appropriate, bid everyone a good day, have manners, bid everybody a good day, and then take off because you don't want to get involved with somewhere that you're going to have to compromise your values. And I also say, please be very, very careful with your contracts you're going to want to maintain control of a number of things that are essential. Your staffing. You want to have staffing decisions as the BCBA. Your programmatic decisions, your clinical decisions. There's things that you have to make sure in your contracts you maintain control over. Otherwise, again, you may find yourself with some very, very unpleasant surprises uh, not too long down the line. So uh, those are things that I've seen happen, and those are things that I worry about uh, just because I've seen them. I don't know, Jacob, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think for me, what I have seen is behavior, behavior analysts are guided by our core principles and our ethics code. Now you have 
private equity, and they're not governed by either. Um, and this can absolutely be a point of contention. Um, I've heard of situations in which behavior analysts are committed to provide ethical service provision, but are limited by the organizational policies um, that exist. Um, for me, I was in an organization. Uh, my caseload was unmanageable. Like it was mathematically impossible because like kind of all of my clients were after school hours. I couldn't get to all of them um, to see them twice a week, uh, twice a month. It had been impossible. I kind of to actually map that out. But that was from a BCBA run organization. So again, like kind of, I think the challenges that we hear about in social media that are lobbied against private equity as being intrinsic to a private equity run organization um, is a fallacy. Like a lot of the complaints and the concerns that we hear about are not necessarily based on private equity specific. Um, it's based on what Bobby had mentioned earlier about like kind of the challenges with getting indirect hours. Um, we don't have frameworks and structures in place for uh, behavior analysts to give the training necessary to our direct support workers so that they can be as effective as they can be, right? Like kind of it's really governed by um, how many hours they need um, or governed by um, the 5% needed in order to um, get the accrued hours for the month. And it's not based on need. Um, and some practitioners are gonna need more support and we're not able to give them that support. Um, a scary statistic is that 60% of all um, BACB certificates were certified in the last four years, 60%. Um, and that's, a, that's the reality that we're, that we're working in, regardless of private equity. Private equity is allowing us to serve more clients, which is both great, but it's also scary because we're not serving them effectively if we're not given the training and the support needed um, in order for us to actually be providing actual behavior analytic services. Um, if we are spread too thin, it's gonna affect our training and it's also then gonna affect uh, the consumers and the quality of service that our consumers are, are acquiring. Um, and just to like make an extension, as a result of this burden, the fields based on a lot of data that we have from a lot of surveys are demonstrating compassion fatigue and burnout, which is prevalent in our field. Um, and that is not a private equity issue. That's an issue that we are experiencing um, regardless of the organization in which uh, the behavior analyst is working in. Um, and I think that's where we need to be focusing our attention. Um, I think the attention that's been focused on private equity is and vilifying private equity as the problem um, is not addressing the actual problem which is, in my belief, a lack of training um, and burnout that exists in the field. Yeah, Jacob, yeah. that is such a good point. And if I could just jump in, uh, and you use the word vilify. I have seen people use the word evil. Yeah. Um, just some really, uh, these, these adjectives, you're like, oh, so this whole thing is evil and and you bring a very you're making a good nuanced point and that is you know, private equity is there yes part of it is their job is to make money in business and if you're doing business what are ways that you could optimize your returns and of course you want to optimize your returns without 
as, as both you and Bobby have said, without, you need to do this in an ethical way. You need to do it so that the clients are still receiving the full benefit of this science that we all love. Uh, you know, I think there are some other issues that go on, like from my own personal experience, you know, when we, uh, we met with people from the private equity term when they were courting us in looking to, to buy our company, which was called Chartlytics at the time. And you know, they said, hey, look, here's where the business is going. Here's the things that we would like to do with the business. And I can tell you, this is almost five years later. This May, it'll be five years since I've been with Central Reach. Pretty much everything that they have said has turned out to be true. It's not like they lied to us and told us. But what I have seen in other companies, and, and this goes back to what you said, Bobby, when you sign your name on the dotted line, you no longer have control of that. It's not your business anymore. And if you have a uh, particular software, let's say, and a company decides, well, you know what, this software really isn't meeting the needs that we think it is, that software can be shut down and it's not yours anymore. And although you may have poured your heart and soul into that particular product, the fact that you did agree to sell it and this company said, well, based on where we're going with this organization, this doesn't quite, that's, that's not bad, that's not evil, that's a business decision. And it's very easy to have hurt feelings and to interpret that and, and cast that action as, oh, you know, those people are terrible. They did this thing. And you know, that's just, uh, I think that's a very important reality uh, to, to highlight. Um, Bobby, you wanted to, to jump in there? Yeah, um, I was thinking of, again, at my last ABBA presentation on this topic, uh, it isn't the most professional, unprofessional thing I've ever said, unfortunately. I think I've even been more unprofessional than this, but it just came out and I'm just going to use it again. If you think private equity is the problem, then you're high. Um, and I'm going to say this, unfortunately, and I don't mean to be overly glib, but take it from the perspective of someone where I've had a number of people approach and say, we would like to come within the umbrella. And uh, would you come and take a look at us and evaluate possibly for, um, for our coming under your umbrella? And Jacob was talking about the number of people who have very, very limited experience in our field. And I'm going to throw in an editorial comment and much less uh, experience in anything in business. Uh, the best show of the last several years, in my opinion, was something called Lucifer. Uh, and Lucifer, Tom Ellis, had a great line in one of his uh, soliloquies. He turned to all the other angels and said, have any of you so much as ever run a taco truck? Now, I don't know what's actually involved in running a taco truck, but the point that he was trying to make was none of you ever had the experience in having to run an organization, having to run an enterprise, and unfortunately, it shows. So again, I'm just going to give some very bad examples. I walked into certain organizations to meet with them, to look over what they were doing. And again, these are not private equity-backed organizations. These were people who were trying to come under a private equity-backed um, arrangement. And what I saw, forgive me, was appalling at times, where I watched people taking medications out of a drawer that, by state law, have to be locked up. You have to have count-ups, count-downs, the pills have to be in a particular original bottle. 
In some states, the person had to have gone through supervision in order to hand out those pills. Uh, none of that. Uh, I couldn't find a fire extinguisher in many places. I couldn't find uh, data collection systems. People were using the most uh, inaccurate data or no data. Uh, HIPAA compliance, totally blown to Hades. Uh, absolutely no people's pictures, names, all kinds of things all over the walls, everything this side of their social security numbers and visa card numbers. Totally unsafe physical locations. I hate to say it, but looking things over, I knew there was falsification of records or billing. There was completely non-existent or rubber stamped supervision. There really was no real training going on. And some of the programming I saw, again, the worst kind of what we called in my day cookie cutter program. And again, I'm going to show my age here before there was Word before there was Microsoft Word, there was WordPerfect 5.1 and Alt F5 was search word and replace. So when I was a kid, we had an expression, it was an Alt F5, which is the exact same program for everybody, but they just did a word search and replace and they changed the names. Um, so now everybody has their own programs, but it's the exact same programs for everybody. Everything that we as behavior analysts sometimes make fun of in our darker moments about what we see other people doing was what I was seeing done in these so-called ABA organizations. And again, I have to emphasize, these were not private equity backed firms. These were people who were seeking private equity backing, which probably would be the only thing that could save them if I'm going to be honest about it. They needed someone to come in who knew how to run an organization and somebody who knew equity laws, somebody who could help them to come up with a safe facility, with a HIPAA compliant facility, with legal compliance everything that you uh, possibly could have um, that yours that you could possibly need to run an organization that unfortunately they did not have so forgive me it's sadly not the most unprofessional thing i've ever seen i've ever said but again i have to stand by my comment if you think that private equity is the problem you're high it's an easy scapegoat but i think jacob has much more captured what the real problem is yeah, like I think of what that, I can imagine those practitioners that started that organization or that's trying to build that organization from the ground up, they may be doing it with the best intentions. They just oh. don't have the skill set. They don't have the competency to like kind of scale their success um, to an organization. And I agree, Bobby, I think the only thing that could save them is private equity and or like kind of just some like kind of somebody coming in, giving them the resources in order to for them to be um, engaged in like kind of successful organizational behavior management, but also like policy development and all of those things are are sorely missing. And again, intentions could be great. Um, we're not teaching practitioners to be leaders. I think for me, the reality is private equity is not going anywhere. It is a fixture in healthcare. Um, working with private equity is the path forward. I think us demonizing private equity, I think that us finger pointing and saying that private equity is a problem is again, like as Bobby was saying, is missing like kind of a larger point of how we need to pull our resources in order for us to be able to be proud of the behavior analysis that we see across the country. Um, right now, the people that I'm talking to at least are scared are worried, are not proud of the behavior analysis that we see across the country. Um, 
And I think the path forward is, again, not vilifying private equity and believing that if we get rid of private equity, which is impossible, but thinking that if we can get rid of private equity and go back to BCBA-run organizations, the problem will be fixed. That's an erroneous consideration because it's not going to happen. And it's not true, right? We really need to start focusing on targeting skill deficits that we have um, within organizations. Um, and again, like kind of pulling resources and sharing resources and sharing um, models that are effective so that organizations can be more successful and that you're not having situations where um, people aren't getting the training that they need in order to be providing quality services um, to their clients, which is I fearful is what's happening in a lot of places. Um, one of the concerns that exists is uh, self-advocates and um, consumers complaining about ABA as being ineffective and or causing harm. Um, the example that Bobby had shared, when I was spread very thin, I was not an effective behavior analyst. Um, and in being ineffective, there is an access to possibly causing harm. And like kind of that needs to be addressed. Um, and addressing private equity is not going to fix that problem. What's going to fix that problem is effective training. It's a realization that we're growing way too quickly. Um, and thinking about systems that we can implement within behavior analysis to ensure that we are building um, on a competency. Like the, B, the, the exam is just you're minimally competent after you pass that exam, right? Like kind of how can we as a field uh, support our practitioners to provide quality care because we're not going to be able to provide quality care by just passing that exam, right? There's got to be more. There's got to be ways that we can ensure that supervision is more effective. There's got to be ways to ensure that we are addressing compassion fatigue and burnout. I'm in the field going back to Sarah Troutman's defy community data. Um, there is clear examples that we are unwell because we are not sleeping well. We're not eating well. We're not exercising. Um, and from an organizational standpoint, our caseloads are largely too high, right? There's a correlation between high caseloads and job dissatisfaction. Those that have lower caseloads are more satisfied with their job. And that makes sense because you're able to impact the change that you want to be um, impacting. And these are the conversations we need to have. Private equity, this conversation is important, I think, as like kind of a, the information that is out there. Um, but I'd love for there to be a situation in the near future where we're not talking about private equity um, because it isn't it isn't the the problem um, that people are making it out to be. Thank you and both. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to add, and Jacob, I, I thank you for helping me. I, I should clarify one of my points. I may have been sounding very mean about some of the places that I saw, and it was nobody who was deliberately going out to set up a schlock operation, I'm sure. Uh, nobody is trying to violate HIPAA. Nobody's trying to violate laws about medications. Nobody's trying to have cookie cutter programs. It was just what they wound up being sort of forced into, I think, because as you said, they were so overworked. And when I talked about before, all the other things they had to do, fight with the insurance companies, do the billing, do the HR, do the all the other things the, uh, yeah, that, that we outlined, when does that leave you time to do the functional analysis of this particular kid's uh, challenging behavior? And remember, again, I wanted to be a behavior analyst. I wanted to be all these other things is something I very commonly hear. And 
again, unfortunately, I think you hit a nail on the head there that so many of the practices that are not our best practices, and that includes the overworking people that you've talked about, comes about because we're spread too thin doing 15 different jobs. And I would also add one other thing. Um, when was the last time any of you saw a private doctor doing a house call? Uh, comparatively rare compared to, you know, Little House on the Prairie when, what was it, Dr. <laughs> Baker would show up in his horse and buggy. Uh, I'm dating myself here, and maybe I've even gotten my facts wrong. But every old 1920s movie featured the doctor who came and made the house call, and everybody was in a private practice, and there was the good doctor in town. Those days are gone, guys. My best friend from uh, elementary school now works for City MD. She's a wonderful doctor. She's all kinds of things, you know, nothing like having your personal physician to make fun of you when you get sick and stuff because we're good enough friends that she can be abusive to me when I walk in as a patient. But I'm walking into City MD. I'm not walking into her private office. The private doctor's office, how many of those have closed in the last couple of decades? The reality of medicine mm -hmm. has changed and medical doctors need what we need in terms of the infrastructure, the support, the insurance, the law, the HR, the everything else. So again, if we think this is just us, we're looking at this very myopically. This is the entire medical slash psychology treatment world where people have had to organize into groups and these groups have had backing in order to function in the modern world. Wow, dropping the Doc Baker. I'm gonna have to remember that one. <laughs> You just oh, I, I should have just Googled it while Jacob was talking and I could have looked more sure of myself, but uh, I didn't. So uh, let me ask you two both another question. Uh, if you, either of you two were giving advice to one of two types of people, let's say you knew somebody that was considering selling to private equity, or let's say you were giving advice to someone who said, you know, I'm thinking about joining this company, this private equity, how would you address, what advice would you give to folks that came to you that may have had some concerns about either one of those, uh, either one of those opportunities? What would you say? I feel like Bobby's lives in that space. Um, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, again, I would tell people, look at who you're joining with. Please be very, very careful. This is a make or break decision. And I don't mean to be, I can't make it any more dramatic than it is. You could be signing away the rights right. to an organization that you created with your proverbial blood, sweat, and tears for the last 20 some odd years. Please, this is a deadly serious decision. Get all the information you possibly can. What are the values of the people that you're talking to, and again, in my case, we spoke to, I forget how many, but it was certainly in the double digits of different organizations that wanted to partner with us. And you know what? We looked at their history. What have you done before? You've cooked up with other organizations in the past. What became of them? Can you interview people who are working with them currently or who worked with them in the past? What is their value? As I said, I mean, one of the things that sold me on the people that I was talking to was they told me a story, which I then verified with one of the old organizations, forgive me for not being a trusting type person, but they told me the story of 
another place that wanted to cut training and wanted to cut supervision in the name of the bottom line. And my people said, don't you dare, because that's going to affect our name in the field. And we don't want our name being associated with anything except quality. So please be very, very careful. Find out everything you can about this group. What's their model? If they're going to tell you, oh, yeah, we're going to set up these clinics during the day. And you know that you live in a location where that's not going to be easily done. You are going to have to be very, very wary. As I mentioned before, thankfully, the scope restriction has been lifted in New York. But if they wanted to return around and say, okay, we're going to get a bunch of behavior analysts who are going to consult with people who have ADHD, and you're going to say, no, that, that wasn't legal. You, you, you can't do that. You have to be very, very careful. Does the organization share your values and share your values long term? Um, some people know one of my hobbies is home brewing. I like to make my beer. I know some people in the microbrew industry, and there are people who create a microbrewery not because they want to make beer, but because they want to be acquired by Anheuser Busch. And they're really only in the business to get a quick turnaround. And that's people making beer. Is that who you are as a behavior analyst? Are you trying to make a quick turnaround? I'm going to make an organization, hope that I get uh, acquired by private equity, and then I can retire on the profits or whatever dream you have. That's probably not you. If it is, you're not listening to this podcast, I'm imagining. So you were in this for the long haul. You're in this for quality. You want to hook up with a private equity firm that is also in it for the long haul and is also in it for the quality. And that's information that's publicly available. You can check what their history is. You can check who they've been affiliated with. You can check what has become of those organizations. Please, I am begging you, do so. And then the other thing I would say is you're a behavior analyst. You're not an attorney. Make the investment in having an attorney look at your contract very, very carefully. And do not sign away, as I said before, any rights that you want and have to want to sign away, you know, that you don't want to sign away. Things that you need to have to run your organization properly. Make sure that you negotiate for those and that you keep those in the contract or, again, have good manners, bid everybody a good day. Don't sign something you're going to regret. And that's what I've unfortunately seen with some friends and colleagues is they've signed something that they then regretted. So please, all of the prep in the world, all the background check, all of the what's your organization's values, and again, uh, what's the uh, the guy who wrote a Christmas story, Gene Shepard? Uh, trust in God, all others, you know, pay cash. Um, it's all nice to have faith in humanity. Having it in the contract is better. You know, trust but verify. Make sure that everything is in writing and make sure that you're not doing anything on faith. Uh, forgive me for being a cynical SOB, but again, it, if it's not in the contract, it doesn't exist. So again, please, you're not just protecting yourself, you're protecting the clients you serve. So if self-preservation isn't enough for you, think about preserving the clients that you're serving. Very little to add because Bobby kind of hit the nail on the head there, I think. Um, I think it was harder years ago when this was all very new. Um, all of this is public information now, as Bobby had said, so you can do your research, interview other organizations, 
Um, Matt Broadhead, Sean Quigley, and David Cox have um, a great article, How to Identify Ethical Practices in Organizations Prior to Employment. Easy for that to be extrapolated onto potentially private equity or other organizations, um, part, like sister organizations, I guess, to some extent, if you're thinking of partnering with a private equity organization that has um, another acquisition organization. Find out how they're doing, how that experience was. Um, and then like kind of how, and talk to employees, like kind of what's the experience? Have things changed, right? What was baseline? What is it now? How, like what's the level of satisfaction um, working within that organization? And that will give you a lot of information. Um, but again, like kind of there should be non-negotiables. If you are a committed behavior analyst, there should be non-negotiables in your organization. And those should be written into the contract. Um, and if there's a lot of pushback, and if it's a non-negotiable, probably not, um, probably not the partner you want to be having, um, is my thinking. Again, like kind of easier said than done, and there's a lot of variables, um, so it's like hard to have like a blanket statement as to like kind of what what works and what doesn't work. Um, but just doing your due diligence, like kind of taking your time, asking all the questions. Um, you should be interviewing the private equity firm as much as they're interviewing you. Um, and it shouldn't be just about dollars, ideally, right? It should be about your consumers, right? Those are the consumers that you fostered, that they've grown in your organization. Um, you owe it to them to, to give them um, a partner in private equity that's going to really build capacity of the organization so that they can continue to thrive in um, your organization. We're coming towards the end of our questions and reflecting on what you both said. Uh, I, I think one of at least the take homes that, that I've gotten from this is, you know, our field is growing like it's never, I mean, it's just this explosive growth. I, I like to tell the story that when I was a grad student, I, I went to Ohio state for my master's. And then later I went back after practicing for my doctorate. And I'll never forget, I had a professor who was teaching history of psychology. And you no, know, this was mid nineties when I was a, a doctoral student. And uh, I love this professor. You know, he had uh, an English accent and he dressed the part and he was like my hero because he was so smart. He wrote the book. And then we got to the section on, you know, behaviorism and, you know, at the very beginning, he kind of like scoffed and was like, well, you know, you really don't need to know the stuff about them because it's a dead science. And that was very hurtful when he said that because I'm like, I love this guy, but he didn't quite have the, uh, the pulse of where behavior analysis was going because now it's eclipsed. Uh, you know, we can't mint enough behavior analysts to cover the need and not just in the autism IDD space, just generally where everyone's going. And I think a lot of the conversations that we've had you know, come from a place of protection. You know, people really love our, I know you you all do, everyone on uh, this podcast, myself included, uh, just have such strong feelings about behavior analysis and we want it done well because we understand how much it, how well it can impact someone's life in, in whatever way that could be. It could be comprehensive. It could be you know, more focused, whichever way it's being done. So th these are some uh, just really interesting questions in, in conversations that we're going to continue having. So let me ask you uh, maybe for 
any kind of uh, lessons learned, any comments that you know maybe didn't come up or topics that we, we could have talked about earlier or just any kind of uh, parting thoughts that, that you have surrounding uh, the conversation that we've had today? One of my favorite articles, or I guess it's a book chapter that most people aren't familiar with, unfortunately, uh, was written by Dr. Mecca Chiesa. Uh, I remember we were in uh, Northern Ireland uh, getting ready to do a, a conference, Mickey Keenan, Corolla Dillenberger, Ken Kerr, and Steve Gallagher, and other people working in Northern Ireland had set this up all those years ago. And sitting there in the pub the night before the conference with Mecca, and I uh, said, what are you going to be delivering a paper on? And I can't do her lovely accent, but she said that she was going to be delivering a paper called ABA is not a therapy for autism. And I thought to myself, great, you're going to get our butts kicked. People are coming from all over Western Europe to hear about ABA and autism, and you're going to do a talk called ABA is not a therapy for autism. We're going to die. Uh, but fortunately, of course, what Mecca was getting at is ABA is a science. It's not a therapy for autism specifically. The fact, as I always put it, that ABA works so well helping people learn on the autism spectrum is a historical accident. And looking at ABAI itself, there's dozens of special interest groups for all kinds of things. Uh, I myself was one of the founders of the Behavior and Fitness and also the Sex Therapy and Education. And there's all of them, the gambling, the gerontology, the criminal behavior, the verbal behavior, the, you know, you could all spout off some of your favorite special interest groups. Somehow, in a very weird historical turn of events that none of us predicted when I was in grad school back in the 90s on the East Coast, was how the autism spectrum disorders and treatment thereof was going to become the tail that wags the dog. And uh, forgive my father, my father was known as the king of cliches, uh, so I've, I've turned into my father. Um, I have an expression for every situation as he did. He never got on a crowded elevator or a crowded subway car without looking around and saying, so I suppose you're wondering why I sent for you all. Uh, <laughs> that was he was a very cool guy. That's the way I started his funeral. Everybody was standing around the graveside. And I said, we all know what Leo would say if he was here, right? And dozens of people nodded and you heard the murmur go up. I suppose you're wondering why I sent for you all. So forgive me for that little side action. My dad was a great guy, but he did turn me into a cliche spouter. ABA has become the, excuse me, the autism spectrum disorders have become the tail that wags the dog for now. I don't know if that's always going to be the case, but this tremendous explosion and I kind of mark it, I always give Catherine Maurice credit. I talk about ABA BC before Catherine, uh, before there was, let me hear your voice. Again, we can do other milestones before there was insurance legislation. We haven't really touched on that so much except peripherally. But that's what made a lot of this explosion possible or inevitable was that there was now insurance coverage to fund what we do. And is that going to last forever? Are certain companies going to cut their rates so significantly that we can't keep the lights on anymore? There's a lot of developments separate and apart from that science of ABA that is factoring into all this, I guess, is the point I'm trying to get at. So we're here at this very unique point in history where a multitude of factors have brought us to this place. Again, insurance coverage, state licensing laws, all kinds of things, and now private equity entering the field. So we're at this really unique moment that I don't think any of us really could have predicted. Certainly I didn't back in the 90s. 
Uh, I didn't expect to be involved in any of this kind of thing. I thought I was be operating out of my car or maybe one day I would have a clinic, but it was again going to be private pay. It was going to be, or if I could work out a deal with the insurance company, but it would be me or let's be honest, Dana, my wife takes care of everything. Uh, so if you know, I'm the poster boy for overachievement in marriage. Uh, my wife, Dana Renicki, who is a faculty member at Capella University, runs a very wonderful online program. I mentioned online before, and I don't want to make it sound like they don't run some very wonderful programs. There's some terrific online programs. I was just talking about the ease of supervision when you have online programs. But we never predicted any of this. We never thought that we would ever be in this position of having to work on this scale and Again, having insurance coverage and all the paperwork and all the everything. So we do have to appreciate that we are in this unique moment in history that, again, any one of a number of factors may change on us that may change the game relatively quickly. Um, so again, I just want to be cognizant of that, that. First and foremost, you're a behavior analyst. You're a scientist. You practice this science. If you happen to practice this particular science, helping people diagnosed on you know, the autism spectrum or whatever uh, people that you work with, and now you're getting insurance-based coverage or private equity-backed coverage to help, terrific. But you are still a behavior analyst, you're a scientist, and you subscribe to our ethics code. There's a lot that goes into this. And again, I want people to just properly appreciate the fact that we are in this somewhat unique and I don't think anybody predicted moment in history where all of these factors have kind of come together. So forgive me having free associated there, but I do want people to appreciate this from a sort of historical perspective. This was not what we thought was going to happen, but these are the cards we were dealt and now we need to try to serve people as best as we can and take advantage of every uh, everything that it provides us. And, and we now have a lot of tools that we never thought we would have. Final thoughts. Um, I'm encouraged by the field in that we are all here, I believe. I think this is a fair assessment, even though I hate using the word all, but to make lives of others, of our clients better. I think we all can say that. Um, and recognizing that some of us are limited in our capacity to be able to do that because of um, structures and systems that impede our ability to be successful in just that goal of making the, the lives of our clients better um, or for making the lives of the clients better it's at the expense of our own um, wellness um, and I'm seeing that across the field and in conversations and the, uh, talking to students that I teach um, and this is this is a real problem, and I don't see how we can evolve um, if so many of us are struggling, um, consumer and uh, practitioner. So, uh, I again, like kind of, I want to relate this back to private equity in the sense that I want us to move away from this notion that private equity is a problem. Um, yes, in some organizations, it is a problem. Um, in some places it's a problem, but there's also lots of problems with other organizations that are not private equity uh, owned. Um, so I'd love for us to like kind of move away from that conversation and really focus on how we can um, promote greater wellness within our practitioners, because if we're not well um, and our 
core principle says this, if we are not well, we are not able to provide quality services. Uh, we're not at the we don't have the capacity to provide quality services to our consumers um, and clients um, because we are not taking care of ourselves. Um, and the, again, going back to the survey data, the survey data show that we are largely um, overworked um, and we're overworked because we're not self-advocating for ourselves. Um, and that's what we need to do. We need to be able to look ourselves in the mirror and say that this isn't working. We need to be able to go to our organizations and leadership and say, I'm struggling. And we need to have leaders in those organizations to listen and to be able to enact the change in order to um, maybe affect the financial bottom line, uh, but be able to support um, practitioners so that they're able to do the job that they want to do. And that is to enrich the lives of their, of their clients. Um, I think that's where we as a field need to be focused um, and we need to channel our energy towards that initiative. Um, because again, like kind of focusing on and vilifying private equity is um, taking our attention away from what is actually um, what I see as the, the main barrier, the main problem that we have um, in behavior analysis. Well, let me say that it has been an absolute pleasure listening to both of you talk about all of the different subjects that we brought up today. And I think I speak for everyone who's listening to us. We could go on for another hour, but we don't have that time. So I would like to thank all of the audience members on behalf of my colleagues and thank you for joining us for our webinar on PE. Thank you for listening to this episode of Operant Innovations. And as always, if you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us at operantinnovations at abatechnologies.com.